Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Me, and joined, as always, by my faithful co-host, Mr. Mike Long. How you doing, Mike? Jerry, Jerry, how lucky am I, man? This is twice in the month of <laughs> April that I got to be a guest on, on the podcast and hang out with you for a little while and spitball some topics, so... Anyway, I'm I'm glad, and it's uh, we're recording on a Friday, so it's a great way to wrap up the week. Yeah, it definitely is, and uh, yeah, we got a good good ball rolling. Uh, we've been releasing weekly episodes for about two months now, and we're just going to continue on with it, uh, hoping that our listeners are enjoying the more uh, frequent episodes that we're bringing to you. Yeah, it's you're working really hard uh, and putting a lot of time and effort into this, so. Hopefully it's catching on that it's uh, it's very frequent now, but I appreciate everything you're doing to get these sessions organized and produced and 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 posted out there so everybody can enjoy them. Yeah, well, hey, I appreciate you joining me today, Mike, to talk about uh, one of your favorite topics. <laughs> well, it's the sexiest topic in financial planning, <laughs> life insurance. I mean, and don't you dare click out of here, listeners. Do, don't you dare click out of the episode because I said life insurance. But I, uh, you know, I've been around a long time and I started in my career um, largely in the life insurance business and then quickly diverted into retirement. But I learned a whole lot about life insurance 43 years ago when I started and I just think it's 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 not a it's a product that's not fully understood uh, or perhaps appreciated by uh, by financial advisors and financial planners. And so when you when you asked about me coming on, I thought, well, this has been on my mind. I've had some interesting conversations as a CFP instructor, and 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 I teach insurance at at Bryant. So I just thought, hey, let's let's kick that around. Um, and see yeah. if it enlightens anyone with some new ideas. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, you're right. It is it is very important. It's something that, you know, most people should be looking at. Uh, and it definitely does get a bad rap. You know, maybe not as bad a rap as like, uh, say, annuities, but uh, it's not, not too far off from that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I've found um, most financial advisors, while nearly all of them are licensed, um, you know, as part of their onboarding and in, in or starting a career in financial management or advising, um, that's about as far as they go with it. And a lot of times firms just have a person who is the insurance person. But uh, I just want to challenge financial advisors to get their head into it and see the different uses that life insurance uh, might might have. Um, when I started uh decades ago, there were three very distinct professions. Uh, banking uh, was was separate from insurance, was separate from back then, uh, what we know as a financial advisor today would largely have been classified as a stockbroker. Right. And yep. those were the three different camps. They didn't mingle. They didn't talk. They didn't particularly like each other uh, <laughs> because they were competing for client uh, dollars and attention and relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that carried over largely and now that it's kind of one big industry and um, uh, but you still see that where, no, I mainly focus on this or that. And I don't know a whole lot about uh, life insurance, <clears throat> but I just I think it's a far more useful tool than most maybe know. 
if they were more deeply involved with it from an advising standpoint. So, um, I mean, we could start just by talking about the three general classifications and then kind of go from there, um, you know, based on the time that we have. But I get into this in our uh, required education courses for, for CFP and the insurance course, we talk about the different types. There's a lot of variations of these types, but they still kind of fall into three different categories as yeah. a life insurance product. Yeah, and the three categories, of course, are whole life, uh, term life, and then universal, correct? Yeah, that's how I still classify them, even though uh, there's just so many variations underneath each of those, but it really is going to nest under one of those three, um, you know, and the easiest to understand, of course, is is term insurance. Yeah, I was going to say that that tends to be the, uh, the easy one. Most people are able to grasp that pretty well. And it's often, um, I mean, it's it's the product now that some people may have their entire life insurance owning life, um, but it's the easiest to get into. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think of life insurance as being uh, predominantly needed when we're young and have big mortgages and families and things that would suffer greatly um, if, if, if the breadwinner were to die, right? Um, and you can get the most, uh, at issue anyway, you can get the most face amount of coverage for the least premium by buying term. Uh, and that's what a lot of people do. What I've seen though, in all these years is there's some pretty darn good uses for life insurance down the road too, that people maybe overlook in the beginning when they just say, well, I'm up by term. Mm -hmm. But what I also witnessed in my career was, um, <clears throat> and this really took off the more media that was involved and the online or on TV experts, you know, it was just constantly by term and invest the rest, by term and invest the rest. Don't ever look at cash value life insurance because it's just, the, the rate of return on that cash value is just so awful. Don't do it. Buy term and invest the rest. And I think that's where a lot of kind of the bias against cash value life insurance uh, started was with that adage of buy term and invest the rest. Yeah. Well, before we even get into that, so, you know, what what makes term insurance term insurance? You know, what sets it apart from the other, other two types? It's pure, pure death benefit. It's just, that's all there is to it is, is you pay a premium. And uh, if you die that year, the policy pays. There's no other consideration. So it's like renting life insurance year to year. Mm -hmm. um, many years ago, there was just one kind and it was annual renewable. So the premium started out very, very low and then went up each year. It's more sophisticated today and you can get, you know, 10 year level premium term, 20 year level premium term, 30 year level premium term and beyond. But it's the same concept as you're just kind of renting this for that term. And if you happen to die while it's in force, it's going to pay the full face amount. It doesn't build up any kind of equity uh, in, inside of it. It's just, that's why it's so cheap, because there's no other element to it. Like there is in cash value life insurance. It's just pure, pure protection. Yeah. So basically, you know, if you buy a 10 year term policy and you die within those 10 years, you get the pay. Well, your family gets the payout, I should say. Uh, but if you die 10 years and one day, uh, then you get nothing. 
That's right. I mean, there are options to renew it uh, usually. And if, if someone remains healthy, um, they're usually better off reapplying with full underwriting to get the best rates. Uh, one of the risks of say 10 year term or 20 year term is if you, if you study and look in the policy of what the rates become after that, if they choose to renew it, it, it isn't pretty. <laughs> it, mm -hmm. gets, uh, it gets to be quite expensive. And so for that reason, as long as someone is, uh, is healthy, they tend to just reapply. Uh, it's a commodity. Term insurance is a commodity. So the premium pricing is very, very competitive. Mm -hmm. And over time, rates actually went down. Uh, on a per thousand dollar basis because of the competition and better underwriting uh, than what there was years ago. Uh, but the, the risk there is the cheapest thing I could do is buy one year, uh, but a lot of people might just do 10 year because it's dirt cheap. And um, they're thinking, well, my need may be gone by then or maybe 20 year term. Uh, is an example of that. My kids will be growing in 20 years. My mortgage will be paid in 30 years. So maybe I go 30. But if the need still exists, and this is what I've witnessed in my career, um, they're kind of stuck. If you get out there 20 years or 30 years, and maybe the health has changed, and they can't get the best underwriting or get issued, but they still have a need. And there's, it's really the options get tough by not having exact matchup of what the true need period is and and how long you lock in your rates um and then i make the case always is i may think well i won't need it beyond my children being grown or my mortgage being paid and that's where i would like people to know all of these other things that could be done with it down the road and it makes a strong case of some or all of ones in life insurance maybe should be considered to be permanent insurance because of the things you can do later with it. Right. Term so, insurance, I say, Jerry, is this, and young parents can relate to this. Term insurance is a lot like a diaper. <laughs> uh, it, it provides really, really great temporary security, but sooner or later, like the diaper, you're going to need to change it because it can get a little nasty to live with the longer you keep it on. Mm -hmm. um, so, and by that, I mean the premiums, the premiums are the inability to do anything differently later because of health uh, reasons. Uh, so it really needs to be looked at as a temporary type of, uh, <laughs> of, of product. Yeah. And it's also, it's not right for everyone. You know, I remember uh, I was very uh, angry at my parents because uh, when I was, I don't know, probably like 16 or so just entering the workforce, uh, you know, got my first like summer job or something like that. Uh, the jo job I had had an option to get uh, term insurance to work. And my parents like, oh, you should do this. You know, insurance is important. My parents have no idea, you know, how insurance works. They're not very, you know, financially literate in any in any sense of the word. So they just thought, oh, insurance is good. You should sign up for this. And then, you know, probably a year later, I, I look and I'm like, man, this is term insurance. I get absolutely nothing. You know, I've been paying uh, this money, uh, these premiums, and I'm getting nothing for it. You know, why, why do I even have this? <laughs> you know, as a 16-year-old, I probably don't need term life insurance. Yeah, uh, the biggest reason at 16 would simply be to kind of ensure your insurability. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know, that you would have some options down the road to convert or or something. But quite often when when 
families start life insurance that young, it tends to be a small cash value type of policy. Mm -hmm. um, but at work, it costs pennies and uh, at least get, get you established with it. But I hear you at 16, it would be tough to justify um, you know, the great need side of it. Uh, but it is a great starting point, and mo that's where most people start, and some never go beyond the term insurance. And I have no problem with that as long as it's matched up with the real need period and, um, and all of the possible uses that a policy might, might have for someone. That's one end of the spectrum. Yep. You know, getting a 20-year term when you have, a, you know, your kid is born. Or getting a 30 year if you get a 30 year mortgage, you know, th those are kind of the, the bread and butter for term, I feel. A absolutely. And, and, and that's where I'd like the industry to go a little further in the education of how uh, uh, permanent policies could play a role in their financial plan and estate plan down the road. And, um, and I just don't think that happens. I really don't, don't think it, it, it's happening much today. Uh, in 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 the industry, um, but I would much rather see someone have twenty or thirty year term than nothing, right? Yeah. Um, when they have dependents, when they have debt, when they have true need, uh, that's better. And and I'll, and I say this a lot in in class. Um, there's strong biases about the type of product in the industry, um, but over you know forty three years, I've had a lot of death claims. <laughs> I mean, my, my, I, I started in the business, it was life insurance. And so I had a, a guy that mentored me, took me under his wing. And he said, I'm going to tell you this, you, uh, you sell 100 life insurance policies a year, you will never leave the business because you're not making good money. And I said, okay, so that's what I did. I, I sold 100 life insurance policies uh, a year for a lot of years. And then my business became, you know, heavily, heavily retirement, but I still did a lot of life insurance business in conjunction with the retirement business because my clients for the retirement business tended to be small and mid-sized closely held companies. So there was a lot of insurance work to be done there. Um, but that's, that's how I learned about it. And, and my point in saying this is in all those years and lots of death claims, no beneficiary ever asked me what kind it was. Right. <laughs> was this term? Was this whole life? Was this universal life? Was this variable life insurance? Was this equity index? No one ever asked that. They only care about the amount. Right. And so in class, I talk about, let's make sure we get the amount right and get them insured with the right amount. Because in the big picture, it doesn't really matter what kind it is when when death happens right yeah. um so that's why you know the whole debate over which one's best you know is a little annoying to me because <laughs> it, it really is the ultimate well it depends well situation uh, that reminds me of the standout I, I can't remember if it's uh richard Pryor or george carlin but he has a stand up on uh life insurance about how you know, you're betting with the life insurance agent that you're going to die and you hope that he wins the bet. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're you're betting that you won't die uh, or you're betting that you will. They're they're betting that you won't <laughs> and you have to pay them for that privilege or that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's very true. But 
you know, nobody believes in life insurance except uh, survivors uh, of a decedent, you know, who were dependent on that person. Right. Uh, so it's just, it, it needs to be one of those first things that's put in place in a, in a financial plan. And then you've got, aside from term, then you have variations of cash value life insurance that drop into the other two categories, whole life and universal life. Whole life. What, what kind of sets whole life apart from term? Whole life, if you, in class, I draw an arc. And on, on one end of the arc, I have term. And on the other end of the arc, I have whole life. Whole life is the most permanent. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's the most expensive to begin. It will cost the most per thousand dollars of coverage at any issue age to start it. In the long run, it may actually end up being the least expensive because the premium's fixed. It's locked in and never goes up. Mm -hmm. um, and in the long run, that's a huge benefit for it not, uh, not to be escalating. But it's the most expensive uh, because it has the most guarantees. Uh, that initial death benefit is guaranteed at that initial premium for life. Uh, it's locked in. So no, no matter what happens with the person's health or the economy, um, it, it, it's just there and, and it's permanent. It also has a guaranteed cash value element and, and that guaranteed cash value element is never the reason to, to select it, but it's there. And so down the road, that becomes a source of, uh, of funding for other things as a as a living benefit um and folks do tap into that over over the years hopefully they put it back and let it continue to grow but it's it's there and if you study this even though the guaranteed cash value in whole life is not exciting and takes a while to build if you study it internally if you look at the growth in the guaranteed cash value year to year uh, down the road, that guaranteed cash value is going up by more than the premium mm -hmm. that, that you're paying. So it, it provides, even if you get out of it later, like you, you really get to that 20th year, that 30th year and say, you know, I was right. I really only needed something for 20 years or 30 years. You can get your money back. Um, now, the, the flip side of that would be the advisors would say, oh, but if you invested that difference in premium, then you would have had more money uh, <laughs> and, and that's correct. Uh, if it were put into mutual funds or something over that 20 year period, uh, if you were the true buy term and invest the rest, you would have a side account that has more cash. However, <laughs> it's pretty rare that that actually happens. What, what I've experienced in my career is buy term and spend the rest. Right. Uh, well, also, I think it's uh, worth mentioning, too, that, uh, you know, life insurance proceeds, for the most part, tend to be tax free, correct? Yes, uh, absolutely. It, and you can't uh, say that about mutual funds. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I'm saying, Jerry. This is exactly this is exactly where I'm getting at is we're not looking for the most part in the business at the whole deal. Mm -hmm. That that, you, you know, yes, I can buy the most term insurance of anything right now an end of discussion. But if you get into things like what you're just saying, you know, down the road, I have the ability to access cash tax-free as a living distribution, right? 
-hmm. But I also then that death benefit is going to pass entirely tax free. And tax free is even better than long term capital gain rates. Last time, right? <laughs> so that's so true. You've got to, the whole deal is the deal, man. That that's that's the whole point is you got to look at all of this. And if we are comprehensive financial planners, and you got to consider this, well, maybe what might we do down the road uh, with that? And then I like for whole life insurance. I like dividend paying whole life insurance. Because now you're now along the way, you have the cash value building up, but you're also getting dividends on the policy, which mm -hmm. for many, 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 many years will be tax free. It's considered a return of premium. Yep. As opposed to a dividend like you would get on stock and be taxable in that year. So you've got two sources of cash then. And what I witnessed in my career with, with participating whole life policies was down the road, people just let the dividend pay the premium. Right. Um, and, and so in that situation, you can benefit later from what the policy can become in the financial plan, because I'm no longer paying premiums on it, as opposed to term, it's never going away ever. Mm -hmm. And that's why most people drop it. I think it's something less than, um, it's definitely less than 5%. It may even be more around the 2% that about 2% of all term life insurance policies result in a death claim. Yeah, I mean that—that's how they keep it so cheap. Is uh, it gets cashed <laughs> out so priced right into it. They just quit on it. Um, and, and and like I said, as long as the need is truly gone, or there's no other function of policy complete, fine, it's gone. But that's not been my experience. My experience has been you get down the road, and it's like, yeah, gosh, I wish I had some life insurance, or you know, we could leave money for college or money as inheritance to children via life insurance as opposed to depleting assets. Um, I mean, that impacts retirement because a lot of folks will say, well, I'd like, I want to leave something. Okay. So they don't use that money in their own retirement just to pass it along. Well, had there been a paid up life insurance policy in place, that can go to the family and they can enjoy the money that they have uh, along the way. But people don't think like that. Right. So when, when would you say whole life is most appropriate? You know, what are the type of people that are most likely to get whole life? Because, you know, I'm turning uh 35 next year and I keep having all, everyone tell me, it's like, Oh, you better get some whole life before it gets too expensive. You better get some whole life sooner rather than later. Yeah, I would do it sooner. And it may not be for the full need, you, you know, like I, I do believe in, in needs analysis and getting the number right. Like I said, and someone might show $500,000 need, million dollar need or whatever, and they might not want to let go of the premium to do it all in whole life. But I had a lot of, uh, of clients that would start with some foundational amount in whole life and the rest be like term. And then over time, as their finances improved, they might convert more chunks of the term into the whole life. So that a bigger portion of it becomes permanent. Um, that's probably the most common scenario that I lived in my uh, life insurance career was that kind of, of, of format. Um, but yeah, definitely the younger, the better. The premiums uh, will get high later, later and you'd be less likely to, to do it then. But mm -hmm. I like it as an anchor uh, to build around and then supplement with, uh, with term. And then, you know, the decision... Um, of whole life 
or one of the other cash value types. And that's where universal life comes in and the variations of, of universal life. Yeah. So let's get into that. So I feel most people are able to separate term life from whole life pretty well. Um, you know, that's a pretty easy distinction. Uh, where I find most students are getting confused and tripped up is separating whole life from universal. Yeah, um, none of us ever really understand whole life, and that that's probably just <laughs> as well, you know, because we can't look under the hood. Mm-hmm. It's just the actuaries, you know, the really the really brilliant math people are the ones that put those together and <clears throat> incorporate the pieces, but you can't open the hood and look inside. One of the reasons universal life is so popular is because you can look inside. You can lift the hood and see all of the pieces. And I think that's what led to its explosive growth in the 80s, particular, um, because people are like, oh, I understand this. I never understood whole life term. Yeah, I understand. But universal life, I can see the components and, um, and I can make it be whatever I want it to be. Uh, by how I choose to fund it. Universal life, everything is flexible. The uh, death benefit can be changed without starting a new policy. Um, the premium can be changed along the way. Uh, it, it can start, stop, increase, decrease. You can drop in lump sums. You can take out lump sums. It's kind of anything goes, which is good and bad <laughs> mm-hmm. from, a, from a client standpoint, but people love that. Yeah, it's like, it's like a la carte life insurance. <laughs> Yes, and, 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 and the way I explain it is if you don't put much money into universal life, it looks an awful lot like term insurance. And at some point, you might have to make some changes to keep it going. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only requirement with universal life is basically that there's enough money in the cash value to pay the next month's deductions for the pure insurance cost and the administrative costs. And it'll stay alive as long as there's enough money in there to do that. Um, so if it's really low funded, then it starts to look like term, but the client controls that if they put a lot of money into universal life, then it can, it can start to look an awful lot like whole life, uh, because of the values that are building up, uh, inside of it. But the whole point is the client decides and it can change as they change. Uh, uh, along the way, but it still has the same features of accessible cash value and and perhaps uses down uh, down the road. But you can see that each year in there, you get an annual report and you can see exactly how much came out for the pure insurance costs. You can see exactly how much went for pure administrative uh, costs. You can see exactly how much was paid in um, in in loads in sales charges. Um, so people felt like, okay, I understand this. I get the components. Um, I always likened it to essentially universal life is buying term and investing the rest inside of a, a favorable tax wrapper. Because uh, you drop in the premium and there's usually some expenses that come off at the top. The rest of it goes into the cash value account. And then each month, uh, enough is drained off of the account to pay the pure insurance expense, which is, uh, it's, it's based on a term rate and to pay any administrative expenses. Most of them have monthly administrative expenses. And then the rest of it sits in the account and in plain vanilla universal life, it earns interest. Mm-hmm. And in variable universal life, it's, it can be allocated across, uh, 
several or many different subaccounts uh, invested that look a lot like mutual funds. They're not, but they look like mutual funds. Yeah, and I think that's why yeah. Universal gets very popular. Is uh, you know, it kind of feels like an investment account in a way, and that you can actually pick and choose what it's invested in. Exactly. I mean, one of the knocks on on whole life uh, was that you know the the rate of return in there is just so low. I, I can argue that very very well when you look at pure internal rate of return uh, with that. But it's true. The inherent uh, assumed rate of return that's programmed into that is not real high because it's invested incredibly conservatively, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but people liked having that say. Um, and this took off also about the same time that 401ks exploded. Mm -hmm. So people, you know, were running their own 401k money and they're like, oh, I can do that in my life insurance too. I can go very aggressive. I can go international. I can do bonds. I can do whatever I want in the sub accounts. And most believe that over the long run, um, you will earn more. Uh, you know, and if you think about this, we're talking about long, long period holding periods, right? Because if there's anything that you own that you hope you don't use for a long, long time, it's life insurance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I hope I have this 40 years from now. Um, but historically, the market's going to give a better return than what some fixed products going to typically. Um, and you can make the case that, yeah, I want my life insurance to be there 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, and that's an eternity in the market. So I believe my cash value will grow better if it's invested in, in growth sub accounts or even more aggressively. Uh, and people just loved it. It, it. They just loved it for good, for good reason. It personally was my favorite life insurance product variable. Um, and and I still have clients, you know, they're they're 40 plus years into the thing and they're just like, oh my gosh, I've done so well with that over the years. And now I'm using the cash value to supplement my retirement uh, yeah. or it's helping sending my grandchild to school or whatever. You know, it's really sounds like uh, Universal is the best of both worlds of of term versus whole. You know, why why would anyone not get Universal? Why you know why why would you? It's not the ultimate guarantee like like whole life. I mean, whole life is the most conservative protection approach you could take. It's just like I'm going to lock this in, and it is going to accumulate cash value. I am going to get dividends that I can either used to get more insurance, apply to the premium. It's just ultra guaranteed, even though way more conservative. Mm -hmm. um, Universal life just is appealing for the flexibility. Um, and, and, and so it depends. And Universal life can be a little dangerous though, because if you don't fund it, it's gonna blow up. And we, we saw, I saw that in my, in my career. Um, because people thought, well, I, I'm going to go away from term and get into the universal because I, it's not as expensive as whole life to start out. But, um, you know, I, I like the idea of having something that could uh, ultimately be a level premium program, but also develop some cash values that I can use uh, down the road. Um, but the mistake a lot of people made in the early days of universal life is they underfunded it. They funded it more like term insurance. And um, as the internal insurance rates went up over time, 
and maybe the returns weren't as high as what were projected when they bought it. In the 80s, all of these illustrations were at 12%. Right. <laughs> money market <laughs> accounts were 15, right? Yeah, so, right. So Universal Life was being illustrated at 12%. Well, that didn't last forever. So what premium looked like it would last forever in a Universal Life if it made 12% a year, uh, when it didn't make 12% a year, the things blew up. And um, people had to come in and put some real serious money into their universal life to keep it going. There were lawsuits. There were just all kinds of things going on um, in the early days of that. So you have to be careful and you have to, I believe, at a minimum, fund it in a, in a mid-range strategy. Don't go dirt cheap like term uh, in the universal life. Maybe you, you don't want to put the premium in that would make it more more guaranteed down the road, but somewhere in the middle to start out so that you're not month to month, gosh, am I going to get a lapse notice because there's not enough cash value in my account mm -hmm. to, uh, to pay the term rates on, on the inside? Um, so it, there's just some risk there that doesn't exist with, with whole life insurance where you're, you're done. It's locked in and, uh, and it's always going to carry the policy. Universal is more of a maybe uh, although if you fund it more like whole life, it becomes more of a, more of a, of, of a certainty. But then what, what I always liked the concept of, if you look under the hood, it's buy term and invest the rest, but on that invested rest, you have kind of an unparalleled tax package happening because I'm not paying taxes year to year on the growth, uh, that I experienced in my sub accounts. Again, my work was, was variable, um, and then down the road, I can access that at any age and, and, and stream it out tax-free, keeping the insurance in force or leave it alone. And ultimately, all, everything's going to go tax-free to, uh, to my family. That's pretty cool. Um, when you look at what it might represent later, I had um, a lot of my business, so life insurance business was with physicians. <clears throat> and so a lot of this teaching was going on. Uh, about kind of like buy term and invest the rest, but with some tax benefits. Mm -hmm. And um, so you could lay that out beside buying term and you pay your term premiums every year. And then you have a side fund investment. Um, and then down the road, you pay taxes on that. But when you go to, to use the investment and figure the taxes, nothing's considered for what you paid in term insurance. But when that was under the hood, under the umbrella of the variable universal life, what was going essentially for term insurance expenses on the inside became, is really part of your premium basis. Um, so if I did cash it out later, in which case it was merely tax deferred, if I keep the policy in force forever, it, it, it can all be tax free. Yeah. But if I chose to surrender it later and I had gains in the policy, my gains would reflect the fact that I paid for term insurance out of that account. And, uh, and so I wouldn't pay taxes on that piece. Whereas had I had the term separately in a side investment, um, I don't have the same tax situation. Um, and so anyway, with the, uh, one, of, one of my doctor clients one year, um, you know, liked that concept and, and was funding it decently, but not maximum to a seven pay premium limit. 
and we had a really nice year in the market. And he got his annual statement and uh, he saw what the how much the cash value had gone up uh, based on the returns of, of the uh, funds he was in. And he called me and he said, I get it. <laughs> I, I, I get it. Um, and it's easy to convince clients when uh, the market does really well. In that's their, right. Uh, he goes, I, I, you know, I'm, I see that I'm not going to pay any taxes on this. <laughs> and, uh, and it does have the potential, uh, in, in these funds. He goes, so anyway, Mike, I, I just want to know what's the maximum premium I could pay for my life insurance. <laughs> <laughs> I about fell out of my chair because no person had ever asked me what's the most premium I could pay <laughs> in, into this type of, uh, of, of policy. Uh, and so, you know, you, you, you it, he was within his seven pay, uh, piece. So we didn't want to mech it, uh, create a monster yeah, but from that say, point on, he paid the maximum every year and still has the policy, uh, <laughs> this many years later. Uh, so I just thought it was a funny story that, you know, yeah. that's the whole concept of really in there, you're, you're paying for term insurance, uh, like a, a term insurance, like policy on the inside, but then the investment side of it is separate. And, uh, but it's got tax things that you don't get anywhere else. Uh, being able to keep it tax free. So, anyway, I, I um that that was just I. It all came from teaching. I think if we take the time to teach what's meant, how these things work, and why that might be important, then we find all kinds of of, of uses for it later that we didn't think of twenty years earlier, twenty five years earlier. And just a couple of those things are, I mentioned the fact that people that want to leave something to their family um, could do that quite efficiently through insurance without putting away assets that maybe they would enjoy <laughs> over the rest of their life, uh, knowing that the money could be provided to family that they wanted via insurance mm -hmm. uh, as, as the inheritance thing. But that's a real simple use. Um, the college piece, you know, grandparents. I'm in this. I'm in this situation right now, uh, with with young grandchildren. You're like, yeah, I wanna, I wanna be helping them um, down the road with with college. If that analysis were done, um, life insurance could do that for a lot of people. Uh, instead of saving small amounts along the way uh, to be given for college, uh, life insurance could do that. Uh, and either use some of the living benefit to help with college, but but uh, in some situations, life expectancy will reach about the time the kids are going to college, and uh, and that money could in just in one lump sum pay for college. But people don't think of it like uh, like that. Um, gifting of policies, you know, people have old policies; um, those could be gifted to someone and, and they could take it over. Maybe it's paid up, maybe it's not, but that person could receive that as a gift and then and then receive the death benefit uh, down the road with it not being valued um, at the amount of the face amount. Uh, you know, if I wanted to give a half a million dollars to someone, to one person, and I have a $17,000 gift tax exclusion, uh, there's some serious gift tax in, in that. But if, if 
the face amount of a life insurance policy worth 500,000. Um, the value of the gift is not 500,000. The value of the gift is the interpolated terminal reserve, which is essentially the cash value. Um, you know, roughly it's the cash value. So you've got some gift gift things that could happen there that I don't think are, are considered uh, enough. I've talked about the, um, the internal rate of return on these policies. If you get inside there and say, yes, I'm paying a higher premium than term insurance, but look what's going on on the inside. Um, the internal rate of return on those is not bad. And if that internal rate of return is being measured in the death benefit, it's tough to compete with. We tend to do internal rate of return calculations based on cash value. Um, and that's where, well, it's not high enough, um, just cash on cash. But if the purpose is to use it ultimately in death, then the internal rate of return is off the charts. When you look at premium in versus death benefit out, 100% tax-free, pretty strong internal rate of return for the money that funded that thing over the years. But I just don't see this analysis and conversations going on. Um, and, and back in my day, it was the competitive thing that the stockbrokers, as they were called, didn't want to get into life insurance because it was competing with money that could be invested in stocks. And they didn't want that money to come out of the mix, right? Mm -hmm. um, and same way with banks. They wanted the money in the bank, uh, not going to life insurance product. Uh, but I just think there's far more to permanent life insurance than it gets credit for. And it can, it can truly be a multi-needs funding vehicle if the advisor understands how it works and has discussions of what down the road uh, could, could happen with it. Um, I did a lot of, you don't see as much of this anymore because there's not pension plans uh, are not as plentiful as they were 20, 30 years ago. But um, a pension plan, the default payout from a pension plan if somebody's married has to be joint survivor. Um, unless that spouse says, no, nah, I don't want it and waves it. <laughs> And it has to be notarized. Not very many spouses waive that survivor, yeah. uh, that survivor pension. But it's not free. Um, and, and in Chicago, uh, where, where I did this, a lot of the folks worked for great big companies and they had pensions. And so the person's pension as a worker maybe was headed to be, I don't know, $6,000 a month, right? For their life. If it were a single life, it stops when they die, right? Yep. But the default payout is joint survivor, which most of them were paid out that way. It wasn't 6,000 and then half of that to the spouse. In order to pay half to the spouse, their lifetime pension while alive might go to 5,000 in order to pay 2,500 a month for the balance of their surviving spouse's life. That's a pretty big reduction. Yeah, I mean, it's nearly 20% reduction for life to have that survivor benefit. And, and they, they weren't being taught about this. They weren't really looking at this. So you could do present value calculations and make life insurance the survivor benefit. Uh, so it, it merited getting life insurance set up uh, while they were younger and funded, perhaps even completely paid up 
by the time that they retired, um, and that would that would serve to be the survivor benefit for that spouse, uh, and they had it paid up by then. So and so these were cash value policies. So then the spouse could comfortably waive the survivor benefit, knowing there was a paid up policy that would be their survivor benefit. And the executive liked it then because they could get a 15 or 20% or more bump to their lifetime pension because they didn't have to have the survivor benefit with it. Um, I mean, there was a lot of risk with that and you had to make sure everybody was on board and everybody knew what was happening and they had to keep the life insurance and keep it funded and get it paid up. But those that did that loved it. Um, that, that concept was referred to in the industry as pension maximization. And it was 100% funded with cash value life insurance. Um, but even though pensions are not that plentiful uh, today, uh, 401ks largely blew apart the pension business, right? Because um, mm -hmm. everybody went that way. Instead of having a pension, they went to 401ks with a match. Um, but that thinking could be carried over in financial planning for retirement planning uh, uh, because we're, we're now planning with we need enough capital to sustain, to, to last over two lifetimes, right? And, and so you take a couple at 65 today, there's an incredibly high probability one of them will still be alive at 100. It's a lot of years to make the capital last because we never want to have too much life left at the end of our money, right? Um, so that's another area where you could look at that and say, well, is there a role permanent life insurance could play to be that survivor benefit so that we don't have so much pressure on, on having funds, just the 401k itself or something last 35 or 40 years? Because at the first death, life insurance can step in and be some of that survivor benefit. So even though it's not pensions anymore, the same concept could be there if folks were getting permanent insurance and getting it established and paid for when they were younger and in their peak earning years. But if in the buy term and invest the rest mentality, the term's gone. And now we have, well, we've got to have enough just money, just capital to last those joint that joint life expectancy because life insurance is going to play a role because I dropped my term insurance 10 years ago. So this, this is what I mean by, I just think it's really an understudied, underappreciated financial vehicle. If, if one really knew all the ins and outs and the, and the ways it truly works and how it could, what role it could play in the financial estate plan 20, 30 years from now, instead of just what's the cheapest thing they could buy today. So I can step off my soapbox now. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very important, Mike. I mean, I'm glad I'm glad you, uh, you know, laid it all out because it, it is super important, does get overlooked. And it is one of those things where, you know, if you don't have it and you need it, you're going to really wish you had it, or at least your family is. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in one of my textbooks in college, uh, in the front cover, there was a, it was a, it was a little class on life insurance. And then there was a quote inside the front cover. It said, uh, 
it was from Will Rogers, and it said, if you don't think life insurance is a good idea, try dying once without it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I just, I want people to give it more thought, and, and I want advisors to be more knowledgeable about it and, and, and its role in financial planning beyond just, you know, what's the lowest premium I could get today? Because there are just so many and I didn't even touch on estate taxes. Right now, we got it pretty good uh, with estate taxes, with the very large lifetime exemptions, right? Uh, what is it, like 12.9 million th this year? Yeah, something person. So most people have no exposure to estate taxes. It wasn't always that way. It, 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 that, that threshold used to be really low. And who's to say down the road, it could be low again? And more people will have exposure to estate taxes. What's the best way to pay them? Life insurance. Let life insurance pay the estate taxes. Just because we have it like this today doesn't mean it's always going to stay that way. And, and even if it never goes back down to very low lifetime exemptions, there still are great things the life insurance could be used for, aside from estate taxes, if that never played out. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's years ago, that was about the only discussion you ever found around permanent life insurance was, well, it's for estate planning to pay estate taxes. And, but I say there's way more to that story. So I just want to appeal to advisors to, to go beyond your licensing, study this, study the long range uses for having policies in place that build value that can sustain themselves um, you know, either by dividends or by having enough cash value built in their uh, universal life that it will forever pay the internal charges. And, you know, the software can show you all of this stuff, but understand it beyond just what's the cheapest premium today, because that's where we're at in financial advising, I think, is, is this no, oh, the only thing anybody should ever have is term insurance. And then it's just a matter of who has the cheapest term insurance. And that, to me, is very short-sighted as an advisor. Definitely important conversations to be had there. Well, awesome, Mike. Uh, I think we'll start wrapping it up. This episode's getting a bit long in the tooth, but thank you so much for uh, coming on. Uh, it's a super important co concept, and uh, you know, I think we have many more episodes uh, that we could definitely draw out of this. I'm sure we'll probably do a mech episode sometime in the future. Yeah. And yeah, I would love that because mechs are like the big bad wolf and I don't think they ought to be, <laughs> uh, you know, cause the mech doesn't change anything to do with the death benefit. We'll do, we'll do a redemption arc episode for mechs. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and Jerry has fabulous prizes for those of you who, who stayed on for the entire episode and didn't <laughs> click out after you heard that we were going to talk about life insurance. So I thank you for, for that. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, to all of our listeners who are sitting uh, for the July exam, uh, you should be you know, well into your study routine. So hope it's going well for you. And uh, Mike, I'm looking forward to us, uh, you know, teaching our first class uh, in about uh, just over a week. Just over a week. We get it going again. Oh, yeah. Going to be a good time. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. And um... Hopefully it doesn't influence your willingness to invite me back, Jerry. <laughs> Not at all, Mike. Always a pleasure having you. <laughs> all right. Have a good weekend, buddy. You too. Take it easy, everyone. Have a great one.